American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a national endowment for the humanities bridging cultures at community colleges project. Thank you all for coming back uh, after lunch. Um, the thought of trying to connect Latino history with, uh, with the old colonial history is very appealing to me. As I was explaining to you, this is something that I try to do on a daily basis. And, uh, and the first thing that I notice is that students do know quite a, quite a bit about the, uh, about the colonial past, but they have very clear images about what that past looks like. And the gist of what I'm going to say in the next not quite hour, but you know, maybe 35 or 40 minutes before we can discuss this, is um, that we need to alter those understandings to uh, create something that is more immediate uh, to, these, uh, to, to these students. Hence my, the title of my presentation. I think the task that we need to accomplish is slightly different when we talk about conquistadors and when we talk about missionaries. And so I'm going to take uh, one character or stereotype at a time. I'm going to start with the conquistadors. And of course, here the, very, the models are very clear. Hernán Cortés, Pizarro, or if you're in the United States, the Soto, Oñate. What we think of, or what students uh, think of inevitably, and we also too, um, are a martial, individual, cruelty, acquisitiveness. All of these uh, characteristics immediately spring to mind. In the case of missionaries, we have a very rarefied image. We also think that we know some missionaries today, or some friars, or some priests but we really don't know much about them. And so in this particular case, the challenge is to flesh out exactly what made these men tick. Why is it that they went to the far, uh, to the far flung frontiers of the world uh, to carry on exactly what kind of task? And so I'm going to try to uh, do a little bit of that uh, in the short time that we have. So like all stereotypes, there's a kernel of truth to this one. Uh, but there is a lot that we miss, or that is really a caricature. Um, and uh, I would argue that this deeply entrenched caricature is also a barrier, as I was saying, to a better integration of, colonial, of the colonial Spanish past into the history of Latinos in the United States and all over Latin America today. So, um, so first of all, <clears throat> let me um, say something about the quote-unquote Spanish conquistadors. What I'm going to say is that everything about this characterization is largely misleading. Uh, first of all, let's take the first term, Spanish conquistadors. Where exactly, and so when we say Spanish conquistadors, we immediately zero in on the Iberian Peninsula, on modern Spain. But of course, in the 16th century, what we are dealing with is an empire, a composite monarchy, that was very internally fragmented, right? So there was the Kingdom of Aragon and the Kingdom of Castile. Very few people, few people actually know that, it, that the colonies of the New World were not the colonies of the Spanish Empire. They were the colonies of the Kingdom of Castile, specifically. Uh, Castile was the largest kingdom, but, and they were the colonies ruled by, by that central Kingdom of Castile. But of course, uh, Spain, or the the empire, the Spanish empire, was a lot more 
than just Castile at the time. It really uh, encompassed half of Europe um, at the time. And this is a point uh, made by, uh, most obviously, by a, by a historian, a British historian, Henry Kamen. And he argues that, in fact, uh, the empire made Spain. Spain didn't make an empire, but in fact, the empire was much greater than Spain. And you see it in every kind of endeavor in which Spain or the empire was involved in. So for example, if we think about mining in the New World in the 16th century, they actually imported um, uh, uh, technicians from Austria. They brought in some mercury from uh, Slovenia, which was one of the only three different mines that produced uh, mercury in the world at that time. And they used Indians for, uh, for slave labor, as well as Africans from halfway across the world. So when we think of the Spanish Empire, we don't really realize the, the incredible, we're talking about a global enterprise, more or less coordinated from, from Castile, from the Kingdom of, of Castile, but ultimately encompassing a far larger entity than what we give them credit for. And of course, if we, uh, if we think about what the Spanish Empire became later on, uh, uh, so Spain absorbed Portugal uh, in 1580, and so the two Iberian kingdoms became part of the same monarchy, and Portugal had uh, a foothold in Brazil, had all these outposts uh, in the western coast of Africa, and as far as, as India, uh, we're really talking about an incredible empire, an incredible entity that spanned much of the world, much greater than the, uh, than the Roman Empire. Um, I want to bring all of this because uh, it's a lot more than just the Spanish Empire. It's a far, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, really, uh, we're talking about a, an agglomeration of kingdoms, an agglomeration of cultures that touch just about every one of your students, and they may be able to connect uh, more fully with this rather than just the Spanish Empire when you think about you know, just a, uh, the, the provinces of Spain, of present-day Spain. It was a very cosmopolitan empire in terms of the very expeditions that came to the New World. The uh, world, especially of pilots and map makers, were, uh, were incredibly cosmopolitan worlds. Uh, there were good map makers and good pilots were few and far in between, and so competing monarchies that were in the business of trying to, um, to field expeditions into the New World competed with each other and poached uh, each other's pilots and each other's uh, map makers. And there are many, many examples of this that we encounter on an everyday basis, but we may just uh, bypass, right? So, um, so for example, here in New York, I was thinking, well, uh, John Cabot was, in fact, an Italian, Giovanni Cabotto, Verrazano. You, you find it all over the place, these very transnational community of, uh, of pilots. And the same thing goes for these, uh, well, I mean, thinking about uh, uh, Columbus uh, being the discoverer for Spain, or Magellan, a Portuguese, uh, a Portuguese mariner leading the first uh, circumnavigation around the world for the Spanish crown. Um, clearly, these guys were not Spanish uh, or just Portuguese. They were uh, international professionals who moved from one court to another 
and this is something that, uh, that may be news to many of your students. Um, and the same thing goes for these portal and charts. I mean, I love these uh, portal and charts because they were such a, uh, we take uh, these for granted so easily, right? I mean, when we think about the Columbus expedition that he went three or 4,000 miles across the ocean, got into this island in the Caribbean, uh, one of his uh, ships sank, and therefore he had to leave some people, and then he said, okay guys, don't worry, I'll come back next year. <laughs> Just hang tight. And then, and he did. He went back to Spain, put together another expedition, went back to the exact same island. This is something that does not occur by accident. You need to have a technology. You have to have a, a compass. You have to have maps like this in order to do that. Um, and so, and this technology was provided by these very international uh, effort uh, from all of these um, from 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 all of these kingdoms. The 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 other point is that beyond just the very cosmopolitan world of the pilots and the very cosmopolitan world of the map, map makers, we have the very fact that the members of the expeditions of discovery and colonization were also very cosmopolitan. As you know, and you, some of you read, read my book, but I mean, it, this is all over the place, uh, Seville was the only port uh, in Spain licensed to do business with the New World. Uh, so not surprisingly, Seville, which was a fairly sizable uh, Spanish port before 1492, uh, became one of the largest cities in all of Europe um, at, this at, at this point. And one of the reasons why it became such a large port is because it attracted paupers and people in need, people looking for jobs from all over the Mediterranean. Uh, it, there were Greeks, and there were Italians, and there were Catalans, and there were North Africans, and everybody gravitated towards Seville, which is where the, uh, where the expeditions were organized and launched. And of course, uh, you can see, so this is the, uh, the Guadalquivir River. Uh, this is where the ships were located. You can see a nice uh, road, and you, all you need to do was to walk, a 10-minute walk to go up to the main cathedral. Um, and that's where the, uh, where the signing of the, uh, of the volunteers to go to the expeditions occurred. And so it could be just about anybody. And so not surprisingly, these expeditions included, they were not Spanish uh, in the, sense, the narrow sense that we think about, but they were from all over the Mediterranean world and the North African world. And so really, this is what these, uh, what these expeditions reflected. Okay, so just as they were uh, not all Spaniards, uh, they were not all males. Um, again, the image that we get of the Spanish conquistador, these uh, gold-crazed, sword-wielding uh, individual is, uh, I mean, there are some elements to this, uh, although very few, as we will see, but, uh, but there were also many women. Uh, uh, what I'm showing you here is a portrait of Catalina de Rauso, who was a nun who uh, dressed up as a man in order to embark in one of these expeditions and went to the New World and had all these adventures. Uh, and eventually she lived long enough to write about them. 
Um, and uh, there was a debate as to whether these, uh, these adventures were completely made up or were actually real. But I mean, some of the elements that you see in, these, uh, in, in the memoirs make it clear that she did live or at least interviewed some people who had gone through some of these ex uh, uh, adventures. Uh, but of course, beyond, um, this is one uh, extreme example, right, which is women dressing up and pretending passing as men in order to, uh, to become involved uh, in these uh, voyages of exploration. Um, but in fact, what we, the evidence shows that there were many women involved. There were many women involved in these early uh, voyages of exploration. Now, granted, Columbus didn't take any women on his voyage of discovery. And what's even more astounding to me, uh, Columbus didn't include any women in the second uh, voyage of exploration, which was a monumental uh, effort. I mean, the first one was, you know, the three little caravels. It was really a fly-by-night, uh, you know, try to go east by sailing west. It was a crazy idea, and it, it panned out. The second one was 15 ships and around 1,500 individuals all of them, all of them male, as, as far as we can tell. But beginning in the third uh, voyage on, what we have is women uh, going into all of these, or virtually all of these um, expeditions, which is something that uh, is often not mentioned in the history textbooks. Richard Konet Konetzke um, has investigated the passenger lists. Before you could enlist in some of these expeditions, you had to register your name. So we have the, the passenger lists of the many, many expeditions going out of Seville in the early decades. Um, and of course, the record is incomplete. There were many people who did not register and nonetheless went to the New World. But at least we have those lists. And what we can tell from those lists is that fully 10% were women. So it was pretty significantly male, but there were a 10%. In some years, this percentage could go up as much as 20% or 27% in one year. That's a pretty significant uh, presence of women, which we completely erase when we say Spanish conquistadors, right? Uh, I mean, 20%, 10%. The reason for these women for going to the New World are not difficult to understand, right? Uh, in the 16th century, going to the New World was a major undertaking. Uh, it, it, it was the voyage of a lifetime. It was unclear whether you go to the New World and then come back to Spain and then go back. So uh, many of the captains and you know, professionals who went on these expeditions took the entire families with them because they intended to live in the New World for good. So many women went as wives, as daughters, as servants, of these, uh, of these big families. That's, uh, that's very clear. Um, there were differences, of course. Uh, there were more women going to places that were already quite settled. So we know, for example, that probably the percentage of Spanish women or European women was probably highest in Mexico City. It was probably higher than in Peru, for example. Um, uh, and of course, it was definitely higher uh, in the more settled areas than in frontier areas, where, which were more uh, you would find far uh, larger percentage of, uh, of European males. Some, there were some captains who refused to take women alone, uh, along simply. They just didn't want to do it. But most captains um, allowed uh, women in their, uh, in their ships. There were also, I mean, to me the most fascinating is there were also um, single women traveling to the New World. 
And uh, single women went to the New World or came to the New World for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one of the most obvious one was the, simply the, the, the ratio of genders. Uh, in, in the old world, let's think about it, in a place like Seville, there was a supper abundance of women because many of the males were going on these voyages of discovery and many of them actually ended up dying or staying on in the New World. Um, so, for example, we have some um, uh, commentaries from the Venetian ambassador, for example, saying that he thought that, uh, that Seville was uh, completely dominated by women. And he marveled at the idea that many of the, the jobs traditionally made by uh, men, like roofing, in Seville were made by women. Um, and there were many other jobs related to construction that were made by women. So women uh, living in Seville in the 16th century uh, had a harder time finding a marriageable partner. And of course, the situation was exactly the opposite in the New World, right? In the New World, what you have is a bunch of males, uh, many of whom uh, suffered disastrous fates, but many of whom actually were uh, set up in royal style. They were given lands. They lorded it over Indians. And all they needed for their conjugal, conjugal bliss was a Spanish woman willing to marry them. Uh, so, uh, so not surprisingly, there were, uh, there were Spanish, uh, single Spanish women who took advantage of this gender difference and traveled, which to me is... Uh, it's an incredible, uh, an incredible undertaking if you think of the fact that it took about an, a month and a half on the deck of a ship where you're completely surrounded by all these people, but nonetheless, they did it. So, so, so just to go back, so they were not all Spaniards, they were not all males, and they were not all soldiers, again. We think of these swordsmen fully, I mean, this is a 17th century uh, re-elaboration of the encounter between Hernán Cortés and his men and uh, the Aztec Emperor Montezuma, Moctezuma um, on the, on the, on the left-hand side. Um, it, it was a, a recreation uh, of a century later. Uh, but what's really interesting is just look at the, at the whole depiction of the Spanish uh, troops, all male, all in armor, all uh, very martial looking. Uh, when you actually look at the, at the professions of the people who went to the New World, only 3 or 4% had any formal military training. Soldiers were in a distinct minority in these expeditions. Um, again, for the reasons that we had uh, talked about before, uh, expedition leaders made their recruitment in the very steps of the cathedral in Seville. They took any likely volunteers. Uh, in fact, if you were an expedition leader, um, the last thing you wanted to do was to take all soldiers, right? What you really wanted was an assortment of different professions that would actually make viable your, um, your colonization venture. Uh, so, you know, an astounding 25% uh, were artisans, there were many merchants, there were uh, uh, people who knew how to cultivate the land. This makes a lot more sense than bringing a bunch of soldiers to the New World. I would just conclude this section by saying that uh, 
In fact, the very word, and we, I know that we've been discussing terms and you're all tired about the, we don't want to get bogged down in nomenclature, but the very term conquistador is a term that existed in the 16th century, but it was very seldom used. In fact, the word that they used to describe themselves most often was poblador, settler, just like the English settlers. And so, but however, we today have created this incredible polarity between the English settlers and the Spanish conquistadors, as if they were very different uh, groups of people, when in fact, in reality, they were pretty similar. And so, and I would submit to you that probably knowing this would, uh, would make your students connect more readily with these uh, individuals. These were, um, you know, uh, individuals from Spain all over the southern Mediterranean dreaming, just like we do, trying to make the best of a uh, harsh situation and willing to take this incredible challenge of crossing the, the Atlantic and coming to the New World to uh, get a new start. And in that way, they are far more uh, readily connectable to, we are more easy to connect with them than these uh, sword-wielding, gold-obsessed soldiers that we have nothing in common with um, today. Now, what they were, I've, so far I've told you what they are not. Uh, let me say a few things about what they were. They were very entrepreneurial individuals. The way, um, and I won't go into this in great detail, but the way these uh, expeditions work was that, uh, first of all, you needed to convince the crown that this would work. And once you did that, you would set up a contract or a capitulación or a charter of conquest uh, with the crown. Typically, the crown did not invest anything in the venture. So these were not the king's men, we're, <laughs> we're saying here. These were private entrepreneurs. Um, and the crown, the only thing that did was to guarantee the boundaries of your conquest, because obviously the idea was that you don't want different conquistadors killing each other over boundary issues. So the crown was very punctilious about the boundaries of your conquest. But beyond that, it was up to you to find, to find a way to make this work. You, as the leader of the expedition, would probably become the greatest investor in the venture. You would be uh, buying and chartering the ships. You would be buying the provisions. Um, and therefore, you would be wanting to recoup your investment if, in if, if possible. So one of the explanations why these conquistadors, we perceive them as rapacious, is because they were under extreme pressure to, to recoup their investment. Um, and the same thing applies to the rank-and-file conquistadors. They really literally were like, uh, like investors in a stock company today. They were very modern in that way. Uh, in fact, the very word compañía, and I'm sorry we're wedded to the words, but compañía uh, comes from this era. Compañeros, the word that we use, comes from compañía, which is this group of individuals going to the new world. And it was literally like a company. If you were a foot soldier, you would get a share of the proceeds. If you were a foot soldier that brought your horse, the horse was so valuable that you could get another share of the proceeds. You could get two shares. If you brought an African slave, that would give you a, a half a share, which, of course, would be pocketed by the owner, not by the African slave, of course. And so it was literally like stock-holding companies that made their way to the new world um, in the hopes of finding gold or some other precious uh, objects. But if not, 
they would go to any lengths in order to get repayment for their investments. And therefore, that's why many of these expeditions ended up pursuing other um, uh, activities, for example, enslaving Indians or pursuing other marketable commodities um, that would essentially pay for these incredible investments. Okay? Okay, um, so this is, so, uh, so I hope that I've uh, at least changed a little bit your perception or, uh, of uh, conquistadors. This is a, a more uh, readily understandable uh, world that they lived in. Uh, in fact, they are a little bit more like us. In the case of the missionaries, let's, let me spend uh, a few more minutes, five more minutes, um, on the missionaries. Uh, here the story is, uh, is almost the reverse. We almost feel like we understand these good padres, you know, ministering to the Indians in the far corners of the world. We don't really understand <laughs> much uh, about their world, and so what we need is to, uh, to flesh out exactly what made them tick. I don't want to get sidetracked into this. Um, just let me say a few words. So the three original religious orders were Franciscans, Dominicans, and Augustinians. And I don't have time to go in through the details of every, every one of them, but just to point out that of the three, the one that proved most successful at first were the Franciscans, and they were the ones that proved uh, most prevalent in what is now the United States. So let me just zero in on them just to give you a sense of what they were up to. And let me uh, start us off uh, by planting in you this image. In 1522, the first group of 12 Franciscans, obviously as the 12 apostles, made their way from the port city of Veracruz to Mexico City, barefoot. Uh, so here you have your 12 European males uh, on these coarse woolen uh, robes barefoot, making their way up through the mountains into the central plateau of Mexico where they would meet uh, Hernán Cortés, who really pledged to do everything within his power to help them in their mission of converting uh, the Indians. Now, the uh, Franciscans, as many of you uh, know, uh, were founded by St. Francis of Assis in the early 13th century in Assisi, what is today Italy, uh, he founded this order with a simple rule of conduct, and that was to imitate Christ, especially following his example of poverty. And this order, uh, this, this was a reaction against what St. Francis perceived as the excessive institutionalization of the church. He believed that the hierarchical structure and the power that the Catholic Church had acquired by the 13th century was a hindrance to the true mission of the church which was to be with the people. Um, and so that was the, the original idea. Uh, of course, uh, the, uh, what St. Francis of, of Assisi criticized for the church also applied to the Franciscans themselves. The Franciscans, since the 13th century, uh, became itself a very successful order. And uh, naturally, it was also torn between a group of uh, spirituals, who people who wanted to really stay close to the original message of St. Francis of uh, being poor and staying close to the people, and the conventuals making the case, like the church, that really if you want to go do good deeds, you really need to uh, secure the funds, you need to plan ahead, 
uh, it's best not to just stay with the people, you know, sometimes some, uh, some uh, removal from the world and some hard thinking and some collecting of resources really goes a long way. But uh, these two, so these two, two strands existed within the Franciscans, and they finally came to a head in the, in the 15th and early 16th centuries. So this is where the Franciscans were coming from at the time of the discovery of the New World. They were involved in this uh, conflict between these two um, ideas. And they believed that the uh, discovery of the New World was the beginning of a new, uh, of a new era. They believed that the world could be divided into three eras, which they called, first of all, the uh, era of the Father, which ran between Adam and Eve and the birth of Jesus Christ, which was the era of the primitive secular church, right? Uh, people were close to the people and they were poor, etc. That there had been a second era, which they called the, the era of the Son, that had been dominated by a church hierarchy, and it was the era of the popes. And they believed that with the discovery of the New World, there would be a third era, um, which uh, would be a Franciscan millennium. And it was, uh, this was a world in which the religious orders, like the Franciscans, would expand worldwide. And this age would be characterized by a return to the original teachings of the church. Men and women uh, would lead lives of meditation and would practice poverty as a rule of life and would behave almost like angels. They believe this, and they, this is what, what they had in their minds when these 12 men walked from Veracruz to Mexico City to greet uh, Hernán Cortés. Um, so I think just knowing that, that background, this background history, and what made them act the way they did gives you a better sense that they are not uh, you know, God-forsaken good padres out there in the world ministering to the Indians, but they have a plan and they have a global enterprise behind them uh, that is promoting uh, these uh, kinds of ideas. And I would just like to conclude with a recent biography that we talked about uh, by a friend and colleague of ours, Steve Hackle. Um, so, uh, this is a little dear to me. Uh, this is Junipero Serra, who's the founder of the missions in uh, California. Now, California is new, not New York, um, and uh, they, uh, they have a special fondness for the, this is one of the few places where they do have a fondness for the missionary period. In fact, my daughter, I have a 12-year-old daughter who had to make a prototype of one of the 21 missions. This is almost like a requirement of every child in, in California. Um, and they all know who the founding, uh, who the founding uh, missionary is, et cetera, et cetera. We all go on mission uh, you know, outings and so on. Steve Hackle's biography, however, is different. So there are many biographies of Junipero Serra. But in many of these biographies, the sense that you get is that Junipero Serra came out of nowhere to minister to the Indians of California and then founded this string of missions stretching from San Diego all the way to San Francisco and a little further north. But uh, Steve Hackle's uh, new biography uh, recovers that incredible global history. I mean, this is a guy who was born in Mallorca in this little island in the Mediterranean. In some ways, uh, you would think that it's from the metropolis going to the peripheries, but that island was also a victim of Castilian centralization. So in some ways, it's from one periphery to another periphery. 
Um, uh, Junipero Serra was a professor of theology, which you would think would prepare him well to minister to the Indians, but in fact it was a disaster because being a professor is exactly the opposite of listening <laughs> to your, <laughs> to, uh, it was so preaching rather than listening to and trying to convert the Indians. So he had to relearn to become a, uh, a missionary. Uh, and he actually uh, conducted all these, um, uh, um, all these wonderful well, conversion efforts in Sierra Gorda in, uh, in north central Mexico for 20 years before he ever made it to Alta California when he was already a pretty skilled uh, missionary. Um, so all of that just to say that knowing uh, these uh, global stories and these global dimension really helps us flesh out more clearly what the missionaries were all about, were part of this larger community that they were, um, and how they can uh, more directly uh, be relatable to, to present-day students. So I would just conclude uh, this brief presentation to say that uh, exploding these images of the gold craze conquistador or the good padre is absolutely central to trying to integrate more fully this early history of the earliest uh, Europeans in the New World um, uh, than anything else. Thank you very much. <laughs>